You're listening to episode 402 of the GNU World Order. This is Plateau, and in this episode, we're going to continue our tour of Bin Utils, the package that enables people to compile source code uh, in part. And uh, we've been going through Bin Utils for the past couple of episodes, and before that, of course, we've been going through every single package installed on a typical Linux distribution, certainly specifically the Slackware Linux distribution. Hey, speaking of Slackware, it seems like we're really, really close to 15.0, and I say that, I've said that before, but I, I say that now with actual evidence of this being true. In fact, on April 6, which in the, in the time of this recording was about a week ago, by the time this plays, it's probably more like two weeks ago, but um, at one point, April 6, it was posted in the changelog that barring any unforeseen circumstances, which of course are always possible, 15.0 beta will be announced, quote, sometime next week. So that should be, at the time of this recording, within the next five days. And by the time you hear it, it may have already happened. may have happened a couple of days ago for you. That's exciting news. Um, I have always said that Slackware's extended development cycle is appreciated by people who like stable operating systems, such as myself. That said, at some point, it does start to feel a little bit like you want an update. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because libraries start to get updates, and those libraries, of course, have things that rely on them, and other libraries have things that rely on them, and so on. So you, you, you start to get sort of a, a chain of dependencies that goes pretty far down into your operating system. And while it's entirely reasonable and possible to take a package that you've installed manually and do some updates to it to keep up with the times. Once those applications switch over to newer versions of libraries, then you have to start looking at updating a library. And that become that can become difficult because you you want to you, you think okay well I just want to update this one application. Oh look it 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 relies on lib foo and I'll just so I'll just update lib foo. Oh darn lib bar is using lib foo as well. Okay well I'll just update lib bar as well. Or or lib foo needs a, a newer version of lib bar so I'll I'll go and update lib bar. Oh but now I've updated lib bar forgetting that lib baz wants lib bar as well. And so now I have to recompile lib baz so that it uses the new version of lib bar and that way I can also have the newer version of libfoo, which then gives me the big application that I was trying to update in in the first place. Now, that's a pretty complex tree, a matrix of, of dependencies and updates, and that's a very simple example. So you get that happening more than once for each libfoo, and more than once for each libbar. Suddenly you have a whole web of things that in order to update libbar for, you'd have to then update You'd have to recompile all of those things and so on. It can get complex. And, you you know, you might think, well, you know, the answer to that, the obvious answer to that would be a package manager, which would track all of that for you. And therefore, when you update your application, it triggers an update of libfoo, which in turn triggers an update of libbar, which in turn triggers updates of libbaz, or of, of yeah, of libbaz and, and, 
and all the other things, and you don't have to worry about it. To which I say, that is correct, except, what if, in some of those cases, I didn't, I, I don't want to update one of those things, one of those elements, for some reason. Then what happens? And I think that's, that's one of my main things about Slackware, is that, is that yes, I, I lose the the convenient tracking of all the absolute necessary updates but i gain the non-tracking of things that that are not truly necessary and i find that package managers quite reasonably usually sort of default more toward updating than i often want so slackware hits that kind of nice middle ground for me where i get to update the stuff i want to update and everything that I don't want to update just stays the same, which I quite like. Problem with that, though, the, 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 the cost of that luxury is that at some point, everything wants an update so badly that you just need a new system. Now, that, to be clear, is pretty standard. I mean, if you think about it, that, that cost of, okay, I have to update my OS now, that cost is inherent to most operating systems. I mean, if, if you look at Windows, if you look at Mac, if you look at BSD, if you look at Ubuntu and Fedora, and all the other choices that you might have, all of those demand at some point that you update your, your operating system. Like, at some point, you need to do sort of a system refresh. And everyone, I think, a lot of people would agree that that's very frequently a, a kind of a a refreshing thing to do anyway. You just feel good after a full system refresh. So the cost, as it were, for Slackware isn't really that high because I'm going to pay that cost no matter what. But the benefit is that I don't have to let something else try to manage my system for me in a way that is completely irrational, subject to all kinds of weird whims of my own, but I don't have to fight for control. So that's the uh, Slackware advantage. Now we're going to talk about binutils, and uh, that is going to be opening up with Ranlib, which is an interesting one because I couldn't quite get a, a satisfactory proof of concept. But in this case, I think that's a good thing because the the, the reason I couldn't get sort of a, a very satisfying proof of concept was that I was that the other tools were working as they should. So the theory behind Ranlib is. I'll read it right out of the man page. It generates an index to the contents of an archive, which is created by AR, which we've already covered um, in the Ben Udall series, and stores that index in the archive. The index lists each symbol defined by a member of an archive that is a re relocatable object file. So, in other words, Ranlib scans through an archive, a .a file, and it picks up all, it reads up about all the symbols that are being provided, or, or being defined, rather, by some member of the archive. And it lists that symbol for you in an easy-to-read, or easy-to-parse, I should say, index file. And the index file enables other tools to sort of get information about that archive. Now, uh, if you don't remember how .a files come into existence, I'll create a really simple one here. So we can do, for instance... AR and then space R, which I believe is, what was that standing for? I want to say recursive, but I'm not really sure. It says insert the files member, that's the, the file, that's the variable we're using, into archive with replacement. That's what it is, R for replacement. I could also use Q for quick append, but in this case I might as well just do R. So it's AR space 
R space, and then I'm going to point it to a an object file. So we'll do here's a hello.o object file that I have from uh, doing some demos for the binutil series. So I've still got the hello.o file hanging around. Oh, I did that wrong. So ar space r space blah.a. Okay, I'll call it my archive.a. There we go. Hello.o. So I'm I'm adding as a replacement hello.o to an archive called myarchive.a, which doesn't exist yet, but ar will kindly create it for me. And it says ar creating myarchive.a. And if I do an ls in my current directory, I can see that, yes, myarchive.a does indeed exist. Now, I happen to know from the man page, I think it is, of ranlib, you may use nm, which we talked about last time, I think, dash s, or that is nm dash dash print dash ar map to list the index. So nm dash dash print dash ar map of myarchive.a, and that shows me that I've got main in hello.o, the archive index says main in hello.o, and then it says hello.o, and it lists 0000 t main u puts. So that's kind of like the output that we've seen before, but there's that archive index telling me that, hey, there's a main function defined in hello.o. That's nice. Now, that exists, and I didn't have to do anything. And that's kind of the problem here. Um, if I do ranlib on my archive.a and then do the nm-print-rmap again on my archive.a, I've got the same exact output. So in other words, AR has done its job quite well. It's created an index. Well, maybe it, maybe we'll get lucky and it won't update the index if we add something else. So I'll do AR space Q for quick update or, or quick append, I think is what it is ar space q space and then here's this debug object file that i have from a previous demo as well did it wrong again ar space q space blah um my archive.a and then space debug.o i never want to put the archive name first i guess i don't know why so debug.o okay so now i've just quickly appended debug.o into the archive now if i do nm dash dash print ar map of myarchive.a, uh, we've got archive index, main in hello.o, main in debug.o, and then it shows me the output for, or the um, symbols for each, for hello.o and debug.o. So once again, that, that index is looking really, really good. Archive index, it, it identifies the main function in both hello and debug. So if I run, if I run ranlib on myarchive.a again, then the nm output is exactly the same because AR is doing its job really well. Now, if you do a man on AR and you look at the Q option, the quick append option, it does say specifically, since the point of this operation is speed, implementations of AR have the option of not updating the archives symbol table if one exists. Too many different systems, however, assume that symbol tables are always up to date, so GNU AR will rebuild the table even with a quick append. So in other words, I'm having a hard time finding a use case for ranlib, uh, or AR-S, I think is the, is the AR equivalent, to force an update. So it's, it's not working out for me. Um, in as as one might have hoped but i mean by the same token that means that ar is doing its job really well so it is difficult to complain about this problem this quote unquote problem okay let's 
look at... Actually, I think we already did read Elf, didn't we? Oh, maybe we didn't, but I don't see it in the listing here of any of the previous episodes. I thought I'd lumped that in with Edit Elf, but I guess not, and that's fine. Um, or Elf Edit, sorry. So, okay, so Read Elf is uh, similar to Elf Edit, except that it just reads Elf files, and um, I'm assuming by now you've read all about the ELF sort of format in uh, the blogs that I linked to in a couple of episodes ago. And if not, that's fine. It's the executable and linkable format. That's ELF, formerly the extensible linking format. But this is executable and linkable format. And it's the um, it's the format of a, of a binary executable that Linux natively understands. I say natively quite specifically because there are other types that it can process through helper helper applications such as wine but the elf format is something that linux natively understands it is hardwired to execute files in the elf format and if you're curious about what that really means well one way is to use read elf uh, let's really quick look at the man page here to see if it tells us anything interesting. It says it displays information about ELF files. It displays information about one or more ELF format object files. The options control what particular information is displayed. Okay, well, the different kinds of oper- uh, of, of information would be, for instance, file header, um, program headers, sections, and symbols that we know from all the adder two lines and the inims and the other bin utils that we've been messing around with, relocatables, uh, notes, uh, and version information, which is not quite as interesting. But uh, let's find a an ELF formatted file here um, in my demo folder. I think I had, let's see if I have a hello, I thought I had a hello C file or a C++ file, something really simple. Amazingly, I don't. I mean, I do, but they're all over complex. So here's what I'm going to just do, create a new one. Hello.c, I've got uh, include standardio.h, and then int main, parentheses, parentheses, curly brace, print f, parentheses, quote, hello, world, close quote, close parentheses, semicolon, return, zero semicolon, close curly brace. That's it. Now, if I do gcc of hello.c, I get a file called a.out, and that seems to work. If I do a file on a.out, I get elf 64-bit lsb executable, and so on. So this should be relatively simple to look at. And to do that, I'm going to do read elf a.out, and I wanted to put that through less, but either way, before I do that, I need to tell it what kind of information I want. And in this case, I guess I guess we could just kind of go down the down the list. So I'll do dash dash file dash header a dot out, and that gives me kind of uh, some information like the magic magic cookie or the magic code or whatever the magic number seven f four five four c four six and so on. Class elf sixty four data. Two apostrophe s complement little Indian version one current OS ABI Unix system V ABI version zero type exec that's ex- executable file machine advanced micro devices that's AMD x eighty six sixty four version zero x one and so on so it gives me all kinds of information just really quite quite interesting to look at okay let, that's the file header so let's look at the next one in the list and that's program headers. So dash dash program headers, read off dash dash program dash headers, a dot out, and piping that to less again. Didn't didn't really need it, but that's okay. 
Um, it, I mean, this this stuff can get long on like real applications. That's why I wanted a really short application. And this uh, tells me again, elf type file type is. Um, ex executable. Entry point is 0x400500. There are nine program headers starting at offset 64. That's really useful information. Probably should have done this before we took a look at, oh, what was it? One of those, I don't know, nm or, or objdump or one of those. Uh, anyway, program headers, type, offset, uh, oh, th this is the uh, column headings, type, offset, vert, adder, fizz, adder, file size, mem size, flags, align. Uh, so PHDR, 0x000 up until 40, um, and then I'm trying to find something that actually makes sense here. Uh, well, here's something. It, it shows that there is a, a block here that requests the program interpreter lib64ld-linux-x86-64.so.2, which of course if we do an ldd on a.out, you see that we have uh, a dependency on slash lib64ld-x or that we that we link to lib64ld-linux-x8664.so.2. Also maps sections to segments, and it, it shows eight different segments. And you can also see those with just... Well, no, you can't see... The, well, the segments, you can use dash dash segments instead of dash dash program headers. It's a, a, it's a, um, a simile, not a simile. Symlink? No. A synonym. It's the same thing. Uh, but if you want to see the sec the sections, then you can do read elf dash dash sections a dot out, and again pipe it to less because that'll be a lot. And it it lists all of the different section headers, uh, and even tells you what offset that starts at, which is quite nice. Uh, and that's how you can see the sections and the segments separately. Let's see, you've got a uh, section group. I don't care about that so much. Headers. Uh, yeah, so some of these some of these are combinations of other of other options. So for instance, dash dash headers will give you uh, dash dash file dash header, dash dash program dash headers, and dash dash symbols, which I guess that's the other thing we, 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 we had, one of the things, one of the main things that we haven't looked at. Uh, read elf dash dash symbols a dot out gives you a list of all the symbols. Again, pipe it to less because there's going to be a lot of them even in a hello world application. And it shows you all the symbol values, the binding, whether it's local or global, the name where available, and, and so on. All the size and everything like that. And that's, um, that's read, that's read elf. That is um, pretty much everything you need to know about read elf, I guess, except for the context or, or why you would use it. And, um, you know, a lot of the specifics here, I, I can't speak to because I don't sit around reading elves all day. Uh, actually, I read quite a lot about elves, but not not a bunch of about elves. And if you need to look at an executable linkable format object in uh, on Linux, then readelf is the way to go. You get all kinds of information about it. As you can see, what you would do with that information is up to you. Okay, let's take a coffee break now. And then when we get back, we're going to I'm going to try to knock through the rest of bin utils. We're going to do size, strings, uh, dash gnu, str strip and then the wind MC and wind RES, which will be very quick because it's about Windows stuff that I don't know anything about. But first, coffee. <laughs>
Okay, you're back with coffee. I have my coffee. We're ready to go. We're going to end Ben Udles. We're going to get through the whole section before it's time to go. It's not going to be that difficult because, honestly, we're, we're at the tail end. There's a bunch of false positives here that we don't even have to worry about. This will go quick. So the first one that we've got on our list is size. That doesn't give you the file size as one might expect. It gives you si the sizes of sections in an, in an object file, or an ELF file, I should say. So, for instance, if I do size, space, uh, let's do user, bin, well, no, let's do first, I'm going to do size, debug.o, because that, that's here in the, my current directory, and it is an object file, very much what the man page kind of proscribes. And it tells me that there are a couple of different sections in this file. One is text, one is data, one's uh, BSS, one's DEC, hex, and then it gives me the file name. So text is 223 big. I, I don't know what the units are, it doesn't say. Data is 8, BSS is 1, DEC 232, hex is E8. File name is debug. Do the same thing on a wee little program like hello.o, and I've got text being 90, data and BSS are 0, DEC is 90, hex 5a, file name hello.o. Obviously, as it tells me, I can just list hello and debug on the same line, so size hello.o debug.o, and it gives me the output on a line delimited in a line delimited format for each of those in it looks like the order that I provided them. It doesn't alphabetize them or anything like that. So that's size. Pretty much that's it. Um, I will mention, however, that there's an alternate format, which apparently is the f uh, the format more accustomed or more frequent, I guess, on sysv sys systems, which, I mean, I wouldn't know th that from any other, you know, th the output looks fine to me, but, but I kind of like this format, actually. So size dash dash format equals sysv with a capital S, capital V, hello.o, debug.o, and you get kind of a table where it says section size and then the address of, of each, of where, where each section is located, and it gives you the, the size uh, in some I guess a different unit because the size for text in hello.o in this format is 21, whereas it was 90 before. It's 134 for debug, and it was 223 before. And again, there's no indication of units being provided here. Not really sure what that's all about. Um, you can do this, you know, it says object files, but I mean, it, it really, like object files and executables there's not that much between those two. So you could do, for instance, size dash dash format equals sysv or not, uh, slash user slash bin slash, let's just do it on ranlib, for instance, which the command we just talked about. And it gives me it gives you all the information. Dot interp 28, the address is 419.4872. Dot note dot abi dash tag 32, starting at 419.4900, and so on. Just goes on like that. So yeah, that's size. What can I say? Strings dash GNU. So st strings, the command, is kind of interesting because it extracts strings from a binary file. That's that's the point of strings. If you've never used it, you should try it. It's, it's actually quite interesting. Uh, between, between actually using it to find information from, for instance, a binary. Uh, it also you can get all kinds of weird randomized sort of output with it. It's it's a lot of fun to use. So strings find printable strings in a file. So if you do strings on hello.o for instance, you got and the, I'm I'm doing strings right now 
even though I'm supposed to be talking about strings dash g and u. So strings in strings dot dot o gives me the the first thing that it provides back is the words or are the words hello world, which is which are the the two big strings out of this application that you would expect out of the application. That's the the, the printf part of this application, and then it 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 gives me other things like gcc, gnu, 5.5.0, hello.c, main, puts, simtab, string tag, and so on. So it's it's finding all of these printable strings, and, and I, I imagine this probably, I don't remember exactly, but I'm imagining this was probably printed or, or compiled with some some level of debugging active. So that might be, that might be why I'm getting that many strings. Who knows? I'm not sure. Um, but that's that's the that's the BSD strings, and for whatever reason, it gets the name strings. Strings-gnu prints strings of printable characters in files, and um, for each file given, gnu strings prints the printable character sequences that are at least four characters long. It says, depending on on how many string uh, on how the strings program was configured, it will default to either displaying all printable sequences that it can find, or only those sequences that are in loadable initialized data sections. All right, well let's just let's just give it a give it a go. So we'll do strings dash g and u on hello. O, and the output is to my eye without piping it into a different file and then doing a diff on those two files it's exactly the same so that's that's pretty neat it is exactly the same as strings as far as i can tell now you can do other things with this though you've got things like dash dash target equals the bfd name that you want to target dash dash encoding equals and then you can give it some kind of you know, some you can specify the the way that this that your that your input has been encoded um dash dash bytes equals minimum length you can tell it the minimum length is is not what you would type you would type some some length of the the minimum length of of um, of characters, con- contiguous characters that you want it to print if, if found. So if it defaults to four, so if that's that's too much or too little, too few, then you can you can change that with dash dash bytes. You can also do a dash dash print dash file dash name, which prints the file name before it prints all of the the different things. So if I do print dash file dash name hello dot o and then debug dot o then I get the list of the strings. Boy, there's a lot in debug.o. Um, you get a list. Now, so that must have been compiled with debug symbols, because that's a lot for a not a very, very complex application. So um, you, you get all of the, your your list, but you in, pre-pinned on every line. You have either hello.o or debug.o. So it's not like a header. It is a an inline uh, inline prefix, I guess is the, the word. That I would use for that. Okay, now let's look at the strip command. There was a really, really interesting Hacker Public Radio episode about this. Um, GNU strip discards all symbols from object files, obj file. Uh, you can also do this with archives. This reduces the size of your of your of your object files, um, or or it can, I should say. And I think I'm I'm kind of thinking that. We might have really good examples, possibly. We might have stumbled onto some really good examples right here in my demo folder. So I've got the debug file, which I'm just going to run strip debug 
on and I'm going to do a dash ls dash l and yeah so debug before stripping was 28,656 bytes and debug after stripping 1,048. Now I should mention I should have mentioned before I did it uh, that when you do a when you strip an object file that's it. It, it strip it doesn't make a copy. I manually made a copy as I was talking uh, before I ran the command. So if you want to do like a comparison or something, then you wouldn't want to run this strip command on a file until you'd copied it because it, it, it does, what I'm trying to say is that it changes the file. That's the point of strip. Now for something small and simple already like hello, and I'm making another copy here just for, for example, for, um, for demonstration purposes, strip hello dash there. Uh, then if I do an ls dash L, okay, it, did, it actually did reduce this a little bit, so there must have been some debug symbols here. So hello.o before stripping was 1,472 bytes. Hello-stripped.o is 824 bytes. So that's um, that's kind of indicative of what stripped of strip does, and it is a useful thing. That is a useful little trick. Uh, to to know about because it does reduce the um, the size of those files and all that's doing is it's shaving off that stuff that you know is really good as we've seen with a lot of these bin util tools it's it's great for investigation and introspection and stuff like that but once you send it out to your users if you're if you're sending it out to people then I think the expectation typically nowadays is probably always has been that you're you're only delivering what they actually need to run it under working circumstances and if 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 they intend to debug the application themselves then i think the expectation is that they'll they'll compile it themselves and and they won't strip everything they'll they'll look at it and, and maybe even compile it with debug symbols turned on and you know and they they won't have a bunch of excess information hanging out for for GDB to look at or whatever. You can um, you can do a dash dash, I think strip unneeded or something like that. Let me see. It's a, a feature in, um, oh yeah, okay, here it is. It's a feature in Slack build, or not a feature, but it's a, it's a line in Slack builds that we use a lot. And uh, dash dash strip dash unneeded, U-N-N-E-E-D-E-D. Uh, -E 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 Remove all symbols that are not needed for relocation processing. So I guess the, the important thing to realize or to know is that you wouldn't want to strip something before before you start looking at it. Like that's not the time. You know, if you're if you're compiling an application before you've tested it and so on, maybe you wouldn't want to strip it because you'd want access to all those symbols, those excess or not excess, but yeah, those the 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 meta information about that about that function. Um, and then once you're happy with it and it's all ready to go, then then you would strip it. So in practice, uh, for myself, I guess mostly I mostly they, the object files get stripped before install because in a Slack build, in most default Slack builds, at least from slackbuild.org, there is a line that finds all the executable um, files in, in, a, in a directory and then strips dash dash strip unneeded each each thing that it finds so everything gets all the symbols discarded and as you could see from the 
the file size, uh, it's a it, it's a considerable savings sometimes. Some it's almost half the, the size sometimes. So that just reduces what you're installing onto your system, and it assumes that you're not going to be debugging directly anytime soon those particular files, and that if you are going to do serious debugging, you're going to step back, you're going to download the up-to-date code, you're going to compile that, you're going to debug that, and go from there. And and if you do that, and you're happy with everything, or you fix something, then compile, then strip, then install. Not really necessary, it's just sort of a, a nice thing to do if you are um, conscious about disk space, I guess. Okay, so the, the last two are WindMC and WindRes. I don't feel like these are very useful for me, and I, I don't know how much I want to investigate them. Anyway, it's Wind for Windows. Uh, MC is a message, some kind of message resource. So WindMC converts from the MC format to the bin format. Um, RCH and optional DBG, uh, it is essentially a Windows message compiler. So WindMC reads message definitions from an input file dot MC and translates them into a set of output files. The output files may be of four kinds. H for a C header, RC for a resource file compilable by the WindRes tool, bin, one or more binary files containing resource data, DBG, which is uh, a C include file that maps message IDs to their symbolic name. The exact description of these different formats is available in documentation from Microsoft. Uh, the likelihood of me personally doing any kind of cross-platform programming that requires delicate compiling is not great anytime soon. Uh, I, I've, I've been having a lot of fun with Java, which you know removes all of this stuff from from my concern. You just throw a Java file at whatever platform you want, and it magically works, and I, I've quite enjoyed that. So I'm not going to be worrying about WindMC or WindRes or Resource, whatever, uh, anytime soon, and and to try to come up with a cross-compile environment in order for the, all of this to be relevant uh, is not worth my time, and frankly, it's probably not worth your time, because I would be doing it in such a, 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 in such a means that there's really just absolutely no context. Not worth it. Not worth it. But that's what they do: is that they they come. WindMC obviously converts or um, processes Windows message files, which I don't know what that means. Message resources. Sorry, I don't know what that means. And then WindRes processes uh, some some resource data as provided by the RC uh, format. So that's everything I know about WindMC and WindRes. I think that's probably enough. And that's it. That's bin utils. That is everything from the bin utils package. So the next time that you are looking into either compiling software, I think the big takeaway from bin utils is to compile. If you're compiling it and you you feel like you want to know more about it after the compile process, I think the big takeaway, for me at least, has been to use the dash PG and the dash G flags. Possibly just the dash G, right? PG was for the GProf analytics, but dash G gives you those debug symbols. That could be handy. And then, of course, now you know how to get rid of those as well with the strip command. So between those two, you have a lot of flexibility in what you are able to learn about an ELF file that uh, is running or maybe not running, maybe that's the problem, on your system. The thing about binutils is that a lot of these, a lot of these tools in binutils, possibly 
possibly all of them, they're not really things that you need to run in order to compile software. So while they are vital for the process, they are not things that you're... I mean, this. I guess this is in a way, the, these are exactly the commands I'm talking about. Like, there are commands on Linux that get installed on your system. We all know they're important for something, and yet we don't necessarily use them in during... Well, well what, in 10 years of, of using Slackware or whatever it's been for me, I haven't, it probably hasn't been longer than 10 years. Anyway, I go through this periodically. Um, in, in some amount of time of using Slackware, there have, I've never, I haven't touched any of these, I think, even once. That's not entirely true. Strings, strings I've used, but again, I, I just, I've de defaulted to strings, the BSD version of strings. Uh, I never... I didn't even know until looking at bin utils that there was another version. Strip, I, I guess technically yes, I've, I I use every time I compile software, but again, that's that's scripted. It's a line in Slack builds that I I rarely rarely think about. Um, and that's about it. So these are obviously LD and AS are getting used, but by GCC. I mean, I, and I don't even know what the structure of that of calling those those are for GCC, but that happens within the GCC process. So super important stuff, potentially, stuff that you ought to have on your system for one reason or another, but not necessarily something that you're conscious of. And that's why, like on, you know, whenever I'm uh, looking up on the internet how to um, compile on Debian or Ubuntu, or I think those are the two really that, that it comes up for typically, a lot of times one of the things, apt install bin utils. And I always, I always wondered, like, why do they put stuff into a bin utils package? And then I saw in Slackware that we have a bin utils package. And I thought, oh, I guess it's a thing. And yes, it is a thing. It's a very, very specific package as distributed. This is bin utils, and here are the tools w within it. And now you know what's, what tools are in bin utils and why and why not you may care. Next week, we're going to take a look at the bison command, bison and yak specifically. So won't that be fun or interesting or both? Come back and find out. Talk to you then. Listening to the GNU World Order Ogcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at clatu at member.fsf.org. That's clatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.
dreamed, I saw the dead rise. All the graves in the churchyard opened and the dead came out. All the graves were empty. <laughs> 